It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Brett Baer. I'm Maria Bartiromo. I'm Brian Kilmeade. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, October 7th, 2022. I'm Chris Foster. Gas prices are going back up, and oil production cuts could help drive those prices even higher heading into the midterm elections. This is really bad timing for the president, for the White House, for everybody on the ballot as a Dem, potentially. And it's going to impact all those other numbers in September and October when those inflation readings come. That's going to be baked back into the price again, and you may see that number tick up. We're speaking with Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream. I'm Lisa Brady. North Korean missiles turn up the heat on simmering international tensions. We have to be able to, as they say, chew gum and walk at the same time. And that includes dealing with Ukraine, dealing with China, but also not ignoring the situation in, in North Korea. And I'm Joe Concha. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. President Biden says he's disappointed in the decision by members of OPEC and other oil-producing countries, including Saudi Arabia and Russia, to cut oil production. There's a lot of alternatives. We haven't made up our mind yet. Top House Republican Kevin McCarthy on Fox says the president has made us more dependent on foreign oil. He hates American oil-filled workers so much that he'll never turn to us. It remains to be seen what effect those oil production cuts will have on gas prices here. They've already been going back up. It is difficult because you think about last month's inflation reading. The one bright spot was that gas prices had gone down. Shannon Breams, the host of Fox News Sunday. That's a really daily, um, you know, on the ground reminder for voters and families and folks out there trying to manage their wallets. Hey, things are looking better. Things are getting better. I mean, that's something that's reminding them every time they go and they see a drop of five or 10 cents. It's great news. But the fact is everything else went up. I mean, rent, food, all of the things that do impact people's wallet on a daily basis. So for this uptick to be coming, especially when the president had done, you know, he's done the trip to Riyadh. He has been over there, tried to build this relationship and work on these things. Um, this is really bad timing for the president, for the White House, for everybody on the ballot as a Dem, potentially. And it's going to impact all those other numbers in September and October when those inflation readings come. That's going to be baked back into the price again. And you may see that number tick up. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know, again, I how how much voters who are voting, you know, for their local Congress person, you know, put gas prices on, on their back or not. But, you know, there's always a knock on effect when the president is popular or unpopular. Now, um, mm-hmm. this, is the, this is the first time we've spoken in October when we get what these call these um, October surprises. Right. Opposition research on candidates that just turns up magically, um, you know, gets put out for maximum effect. Now, one of the big ones right now is Georgia Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker now has these accusations that he paid for a girlfriend's abortion. He's been saying he's staunchly pro-life, no exceptions. A lot of his supporters are pro-life. Is this something that could still really matter in a close race or maybe less than it used to? I think it can. And and Georgia is one of those unusual states where we've got a split in the gubernatorial race. Brian Kemp, the incumbent, the Republican, is pulling several points ahead of his challenger, Stacey Abrams. But they've got that heated Senate race where the current senator, Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, is out polling or, you know, very tightly. But he's got a lead when you average out the polls on Herschel Walker. And when you have things at this uh, like this at the end of that, you know, runway into the race and there's, you know, early voting starts and it's so many places so early before you have debates and before, you know, these surprises can pop up. 
But in this case, you got to think it cuts potentially two ways. There will be those who say, especially with Herschel Walker's son, Christian, now coming out, who's been a big supporter. He's a conservative voice to say, my father's a hypocrite. He's not this family man he claims to be. All of those things are very bad for the Walker campaign. But there will be those who say, this is an attack on him. This is either not true or partially true or time specifically to hurt him. And I'm not going to allow that to strip away my vote from Herschel Walker. I mean, there will be those who double down in their support of him because they feel like he's under attack because of these late revelations. But it's difficult because his own campaign will say, we don't feel like he's been truthful with us about a number of these things. And we can't plan to have a response to these things when they come if he doesn't tell us the full scope of what's potentially out there for him. So um, he's not backing down. And we'll see how people, how voters in Georgia feel, because again, it's a split there in that gubernatorial race in the Senate race. Who really shows up? Who's got the enthusiasm? Yeah. In the very, very beginning of these these allegations, uh, before Walker even said anything, I, a spokesman for him came out and said, well, you know, he's changed. Well, then Walker comes out and says, well, it, it never happened. So people are going to have to draw their own conclusions Mm -hmm. there um i also understand that this isn't getting a ton of coverage locally in georgia so maybe maybe it's something that people like us talk about more than actual voters that's shocking (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it's shocking to us because of course we're talking about it nonstop. but you know a friend of mine who is from georgia is reminds me last night she says you have to remember he's sort of a quote demigod in georgia because of his enormous success as a sports hero And there are those who will remember that Herschel and will cling to that Herschel and will not get into what they see as the dirty politics back and forth. Um, Another thing we talked about this week, and I I heard a phrase this week I never heard and I like it, um, a political, I forget if it was a pollster or analysis or consultant, um, calls this season um, oppo o'clock when... Oh, that is good. Yeah, I wish I could remember his name because I thought it was clever. This is when, again, opposition research can often come out. For example, something that happened a long time ago Dr. Mehmet Oz running for Senate uh, as a Republican in Pennsylvania. He was in charge of these medical studies where puppies were treated cruelly and then killed. His opponent, Democrat John Fetterman, of course, all over this, calling Oz a puppy killer. Another thing that maybe could happen in a uh, could matter in a close race. People like dogs. <laughs> they do. But here's the thing, you know, his campaign is pushing back. And you remember with Dr. Fauci, how there was this big thing about the beagles and their use in the medical research. And you, it did upset people. They were very grossed out by this. Um, the realities of what often happens in medical research. And it was a blip um, for Dr. Fauci. It was around for a little bit. And then it kind of faded with the bigger conversations about COVID. That race in Pennsylvania has been so icky on so many different levels. The polls have tightened, though. So we will see. Um, When you've got people out there denying the allegations against them, as you said, like in Georgia, it's then up to the voter to suss out what's important to them, what they believe the truth is, and whether they think these late revelations this late in the game are more about truth or more about damage. And I think, uh, gosh, Pennsylvania is one that has been just way messier, I think, than either party would have thought it was going to be going into this into this midterm. President Biden, Ron DeSantis governor of Florida, Republican, of course, have been putting their differences aside to work together on Hurricane Ian recovery. There's, I guess they're sort of, you know, compartmentalizing that for the good of the people that need help. Uh, it reminded me of something that happened 10 years ago. Uh, New Jersey governor, also a Republican, mm-hmm. then Chris Christie, got criticized for being buddy-buddy with President Obama, who showed up in New Jersey after Hurricane Sandy. And Christie said, look, I'm just, he's here to help. We should, we should accept it. I, I don't sense that DeSantis is getting dinged. Do you? 
Oh yeah. The funny thing is what the picture that came out of that um, meeting of them being cordial, being together, putting aside their politics is Ron DeSantis standing behind the podium with the presidential seal on it, which is only to be set up for the president, but clearly it was set up. So the president would take the podium and, you know, there've been all these memes and people saying this looks great DeSantis as, you know, with a seal of the United States uh, president. So there are always crazy optics that go into these things. You mentioned that Chris Christie, President Obama thing, and that was what I've thought of, too, so much over the last week about how these storms um, have political potential downsides and upsides for candidates and for people who are political rivals. Um, thank God for the people of Florida and the other states that were impacted that, you know, they can put things aside to get the aid flowing where it needs to go. The people of Puerto Rico and all the places that this um, administration is having to help out with storm damage right now. But I mean, they played nice together. And so I think it's reassuring to people to see that they can see that. But I think once we're past the the initial awfulness of Ian, they'll be back at each other's throats yeah, momentarily. Sure. They'll be at each other on immigration to Santa sending, uh, getting in on Greg Abbott's thing from Texas, sending immigrants north, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and DeSantis is in a decently close reelection fight at the moment. Um, Shannon, Elon Musk, we found out this week, maybe back in on Twitter. We don't know exactly how it's going to play <laughs> out. Um, a, a trial about his trying to pull out of buying Twitter was supposed to start in a couple of weeks. That's in flux now. Anyway, some people on the left are worried about Musk taking over Twitter and maybe pushing things to the right. Uh, some on the right say, great, more free speech. Do you spend enough time on there to have an opinion? Um, listen, a Twitter is a very dangerous place <laughs> for people. If you have feelings, if you don't, it's fine to go there. Um, I think it's gonna be very interesting if Elon is truly going to say I'm about free speech. And that means I'm not going to do stuff that makes your side happy all the time or makes the other side happy all the time. I'm just going to be sort of a Mad Max situation. You get out there, you fight in the realm of free uh, speech and free ideas. Um, we've seen this with a number of things that he's done that the right hasn't loved as well. So if he's truly going to be a neutral arbiter, I think it will be interesting. Um, we heard so much about the internal meltdown at Twitter from some of the employees who were like, I can't work here. He's a horrible person if he takes over. And, you know, some departures, some high profile ones, too. So We'll see, because if he, you know, the the conversation always goes back to this. Well, will he let former President Trump back on before the midterms if he takes over? Um, is that a plus or a minus? Um, there are those who love the president but feel like, you know, his current outpost at Truth Social is preaching to the choir. If you let him back on Twitter, um, goodness gracious, we you couldn't have a day, a plan, because it would all <laughs> center around what then President Trump had to say on Twitter. And, and that would drive the news cycle. And for better or worse, it drove people crazy. So does it help the GOP candidates or hurt them if he gets back out there with that megaphone? And will Elon give it to him? These are the questions we stand by for answers. <laughs> Shannon Bream, host of Fox News Sunday. Always good to talk to you. You too. Have a great week. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. This is Joe Concha with your Fox News commentary coming up. Imagine being in your home, your car, your office, or walking down the street and hearing this. 
Air raid sirens and evacuations in parts of Japan earlier this week when North Korea sent a ballistic missile soaring over the country. The first time they've done that in five years, drawing swift condemnation from the U.S. The launch was a danger to the Japanese people, destabilizing to the region and a clear, a clear violation of the United Nations Council's uh, Security Council resolutions. But White House spokeswoman Gary Jean-Pierre also said it underscores an urgent need for dialogue, adding that the U.S. remains prepared to engage in serious, sustained diplomacy. North Korea wasn't finished, though, continuing a string of missile launches after the USS Ronald Reagan aircraft carrier and its strike group were repositioned off the Korean peninsula. Pyongyang calls that destabilizing, sending its fighter jets to practice bombing runs as the U.S. runs drills with the South Korean and Japanese navies. Well, I, I don't think we want to overreact. It's part of their pattern. Utah Republican Congressman Chris Stewart is a member of the House Intelligence Committee. When they feel, you know, they want to make a point or sometimes I just feel like uh, Kim Jong-un wants to you know, have people pay attention to him uh, and remember that he's out there and that they have a powerful military. They do this. But there's something additional about these most recent launches that I think probably we need to pay a little more attention to. For one thing, it was a new missile, which has just a substantially longer range than anything we've seen from North Korea before. Uh, we think it's it's at least 2,800 miles, but maybe actually a little bit further than that. And that puts so many U.S. allies and our own interests there, including Guam and other places, that puts them in direct risk. And I think the second thing that's more concerning about this is that they fired it directly over Japanese territory. And as I'm sure you've reported and you know, there were residents there who awakened in the night with sirens and told to prepare to evacuate or to perhaps go to their basements for protection. And I mean, that's a very provocative action. When you alert the civilians, a citizenry like that, and uh, it, as I said, it probably requires you to pay a little more attention to this launch than some of the previous launches. The last time North Korea launched a surprise missile over Japan was after then-President Trump said he would unleash fire and fury if North Korea kept having frequent missile tests. That was back in 2017. And at that time, they followed it up with a nuclear test. What kind of reaction would a nuclear test get now, or what kind of reaction would you like to see? Well, for one thing, I hope that they don't. Uh, they've demonstrated their nuclear capabilities. Everyone knows that. Every national leader understands their capabilities there. I don't think we need to be reminded of that. And it's obviously our hope that they don't initiate another test. Now, if they do, then we have to, once again, take into consideration the circumstances of the test and any provocation that's associated with it. Finally, I would say this. We shouldn't overreact. We can, and North Korea knows this, the leadership knows this. We will protect our interests there. We will protect our allies. And we don't want to make things worse there by overreacting, especially when we understand that this is not uncommon for the North Korean leadership to do this. But, uh, you know, if they ever want to be respected in the international community, if they ever want to be accepted in the international community, they've got to respond and they've got to act more responsibly than they've done in the past. And, and I'm hoping that they will after this last missile test over Japan. The White House still says it's open to talks with no preconditions um, with North Korea because the goal is still a denuclearized Korean peninsula. Is that the wrong strategy? 
Well, I think we should be open to talks with them for certain. I mean, we have to talk with national leaders regardless of the circumstances around those conversations. And that means talking with our adversaries. And I think that we, I would never discourage us to have a dialogue. I'm concerned about no preconditions because it puts us in a position of weakness when we begin those conversations. I think there's certain things that we should say. These are the things that we will be requesting, that we'll be asking of you, and the conditions that we would be willing to work with you. And I just think putting those on the table first is helpful because otherwise you might be just wasting both people's time and actually it being provocative rather than it being minimizing uh, the stress between the two nations. So. I mean, I'm glad uh, the president's willing to talk to him. He should, but he should maintain the position of strength that the United States, I think, has to maintain. And they also have to be more engaged than they have been with North Korea. I mean, our eyes have turned primarily to China in the region, uh, but Kim Jong-un in North Korea is always in the background. And we have to be able to, as they say, chew gum and walk at the same time. And that includes dealing with Ukraine, dealing with China, but also not ignoring the situation in, in North Korea. North Korea recently voiced their support for Russia's annexation of parts of Ukraine. Do you think that was intended to be a reminder to the world of their alliance with Russia? And could these missiles maybe be aimed at, you know, easing some of the pressure that Putin is under? Well, I think both of those things you said are likely. And they're insightful in the sense that, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin, one of the great benefits that the United States has over almost any other nation is our ability to have allies and to have treaties that actually make us stronger and make our allies stronger. Vladimir Putin can't do that. President Xi in China, now he can compel some agreements, he can compel some allies, but most of them are not willing. But there's a few who are. One of them is, as you've indicated, Vladimir Putin and China working together and then North Korea wanting to be part of that mix with them. And, you know, there are nations and, and leaders that we know are evil in their heart and want to destroy democracy and freedom and oppress people. And there's no question that they hang out with each other and support one another. And I think North Korea doing this reminder at this point is, is one of the benefits of that in their mind is it does detract U.S. Uh, ability to focus on Ukraine and China and others. And, and it probably strengthens Vladimir Putin when, when that happens. You've called for more transparency from the U.S. on Ukraine, as we keep sending billions in aid to help support Ukraine's fight against Russia. What do you mean by transparency? Well, a, a couple of things. Uh, one of them is just really simple, and I'll talk about that first. Where is the money going, and is, it, and is it going to where it should be? Where is the military equipment going? Is it properly protected? Are we going to start to see American equipment being sold or traded on the black market, for example. And look, I am so impressed, as I think most Americans are, with the courage and the military prowess that Ukraine has shown. I mean, everyone believed that they were going to be uh, decimated in this conflict with Russia in a matter of a few weeks. And they've shown that courage on the battlefield can change things. But we also have to recognize that they are one of the most corrupt countries in the world and have been for generations. And if we're going to send them $54 billion of equipment and cash, we want to know where that money and where that equipment is going. The more difficult part of this transparency is this question. I supported our efforts in Ukraine. I still do. And especially during the initial phase of the battle. But we're now eight or nine months into this, and it's time for us to ask these questions. What is our goal in Ukraine? 
The Ukrainian president has made clear his goal is to take back all of his country, already reclaiming areas Russia said it was annexing this week and setting his sights on Crimea, which Russia invaded and claimed in 2014. Congressman Stewart argues that would escalate into a wider war with likely U.S. and NATO involvement and that it's time to clarify our strategy. But it may be a tough sell for the U.S. to say it supports Ukraine's territorial integrity then draw a line on its efforts to take back the rest of its territory. Absolutely. And I recognize that. I'm not naive about this at all. And I understand as well that President Zelensky has momentum right now, and he's feeling good about uh, the things that his military has accomplished, as he should feel good about those things. But at the same time, it's likely that the battle uh, lines become somewhat more stagnant. And it's going to be continue to be bloody. It's going to continue to be violent. And at some point, you have to get the two parties to say, why don't we talk about some type of negotiated settlement? Perhaps President Zelensky will never do that. Perhaps he's willing to battle for the next 20 years over eastern Ukraine. And if he does, then that is his decision. But then the United States has to ask the question, are we willing to do the same thing? These are the choices that we're faced with right now. President Putin is being openly mocked on social media. There have been posts from users in the Czech Republic jokingly claiming territory from Russia. And the Slovak president even chimed in on that, thanking them for demasking the absurdity of Russia's annexations in Ukraine. Could that kind of thing push Putin over the edge or is he already there? I mean, I think we can speculate. Uh, I can tell you that the intelligence inside into Vladimir Putin is spotty. But if you want to talk about Vladimir Putin's frame of mind or how he responds to perhaps, as you've said, mocking around the world or, you know, other national leaders being disrespectful or arrogant towards him, I really don't think we know how he responds to that. But I do think if you have someone who is essentially a KGB thug, as he is, who rules as if he were a dictator, which he does, and who has a certain element of pride and arrogance to him, which he does, then you have to recognize that he will not accept a humiliating defeat and try to deal with that and try to minimize the danger. I mean, my objective here is to support Ukraine as best we can, but at the same time, not engage in direct conflict with Russia. I think it would be a potential catastrophe for our nation and for the world to find us in that situation. It is, as you said, a very difficult proposition to find those lines and to find those kind of settlements. But it should be our goal. Another regime that the U.S. has criticized is Maduro's regime in Venezuela. But President Biden isn't ruling out a possible easing of sanctions, which would enable Chevron to pump more oil there after OPEC's decision this week to cut oil production. The White House keeps saying that U.S. energy companies are not fully using the thousands of leases they already have approved. The industry says, you know, current policies are stifling investment. This tug of war on the issue of oil and gas prices doesn't really, you know, move the ball. Is there something being left out of this conversation? Is there a way forward? Well, I can tell you that for the president to blame American oil and gas companies for reduced supply is absurd. Two years ago, we were 100 percent oil independent because we supported our oil and gas industries. And this president came to power and on the very first day. He shuts down the Keystone Pipeline. He stops permitting here in the West. And then he demonizes the oil and gas industry and presses regulators and financial institutions not to support them. And then two years later, he has to go to Venezuela 
and begs them for oil and gas. And then at the same time says, well, it's because our greedy oil and gas executives are, are jacking up the price. It's just nonsense. Do you think this is one of the issues that could help Republicans in the midterms? Well, I think it's likely the price of gas is going to start increasing. We've already seen it. And as those prices start to go up, as we're going to see between now and November, people are going to be angry that they're paying more and more. And uh, I think it does have an impact on the midterms. Utah Republican Congressman Chris Stewart, thank you very much for your time. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you. And now, some good news with Tanya J. Powers. A new U.S. record for the heaviest pumpkin has been set, and it's a whopper. The pumpkin, grown in upstate New York, weighed in at 2,554 pounds, beating the previous U.S. record holder by 26 pounds. It was grown by Scott Andrews at the Great Pumpkin Farm in a Buffalo suburb and weighed last weekend during its annual pumpkin weighing contest. The pumpkin also broke the New York state record, too. It's not the first time the Great Pumpkin Farm has seen a record gourd. It was the site of the first 1,000-plus-pound pumpkin during its 1996 fall festival, which made it into the Guinness Book of World Records. If you're having trouble getting your head around just how big a 2,500-pound pumpkin is, here's a few comparisons. 2,500 pounds is about one and three-tenths times as heavy as a cow. It's about half as heavy as a car and about twice as heavy as a grand piano. If you feel like a road trip to see the giant pumpkin, it's on display at the Great Pumpkin Farm through October 16th in Clarence, New York. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Joe Concha. What's on your mind? Well, he's been out of office for more than 620 days. He's been impeached not once, but twice. And he hasn't done a sit-down interview with any major print outlet since leaving office in January 2021. But Donald Trump is still the focus of media outlets across the country. Editorial pages continue to be filled with Trump-related opinion pieces, and it all goes without saying that the tone and tenor is almost universally negative. Meanwhile, there's a guy in office named Joe Biden. He's the 46th president. He's currently polling in the 60s on disapproval on his handling of inflation and the economy and crime and the border. Yet, for whatever reason, he isn't the focus. You know, the guy in power. Instead, media outlets continue to focus on the guy not in power as the midterms come in less than 35 days. I wonder why that is. Maybe because Democrats want to make Trump the focus, a referendum on him because they don't have a bumper sticker. They have no issues to run on when we talk about inflation and crime and the border and education. So here we are. As you may have heard, I have a book out. It's called Come On, Man. The truth about Joe Biden's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad presidency. And it's funny because While there's 15 books out currently on Donald Trump, there's exactly one on Joe Biden, the president. And you're literally listening to its author. So that's where we are at this point, folks. Myopia when it comes to the 45th president, all while ignoring the record 
of the 46th. I'm Joe Concha. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.